Cheryl likes to ask me, she says, she says, well, how's it going on your teaching? So this morning she says, how's it going on your teaching? Um, and certainly, hopefully, uh, by 8 a.m. this morning, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm well on my way, right? But I said, you know what, I, I, feel like, I feel like, especially going through God's Word this week, I, I just, sometimes I feel like I have so much to learn about what the Lord's been trying to teach me for years. You ever feel like that? <laughs> like, wow, I mean, the Lord has been trying to teach me this stuff for years, and sometimes I feel like, wow, I'm just starting to get a glimmer of it. You know, we, we say, we say, and, and the, the goal, one of the, one of the major goals of sanctification, this idea that God is making us holy, justification is that you've been made holy when you turn to Jesus Christ. That becomes your position in the heavenlies. That his righteousness becomes your righteousness. He has taken your sin. You have taken his righteousness. You're justified before God when you turn to him in faith. And then sanctification is this process where we're being made holy. That we're in a sense where, where God is working on us to, to align who we are in our day-to-day -day lives with who we are in, in the heavenlies with Christ. So in that we say we want to be made like Jesus. I want to be like your son. I prayed that already this morning. We want to be like Jesus. And, and it's like, do you really want to be like Jesus? Now he said, you know, he, he, we want to be like his character. He is, he is the example that we need to follow after. We call ourselves disciples of Jesus, learners of Jesus, followers of Jesus. Uh, sometimes, I, I don't know that this is something to boast about, but I've watched a few UFC fights with Joe, uh, Mickey, uh, Joe um, Boner. And, and sometimes when there's a particularly... You know, if someone gets particularly beat on, Joe will go, so you want to be a UFC fighter? So you want to be a UFC fighter? And sometimes I say, you know, so you want to be like Jesus? So you want to be like Jesus? And I say that to myself. You know, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So you want to be like Jesus? One time in Haiti, I was actually at the House of Hope in Haiti. Um, I, was, <clears throat> I, I was asked, I, someone knew, found out that I do flooring. Now, when I say I do flooring, generally what that means is I've done miles and miles of carpet, okay? And I've also done some, a little bit of hardwood, just a little, and some, uh, some laminates, some floating floors. But in a place like Haiti, it's all what? Anybody ever been to a place like that, Haiti? What's that? It's all... Well, it's dirt, it's concrete, and if you have flooring, it's what? Tile. It's, it's all hard. It's all hard surface. Haiti's kind of a hard place in that way. It's all tile. So someone says, oh, you've done flooring. We have some tile for you to do, <laughs> some ceramic tile. So um, I don't have a lot of experience at all in ceramic tile. That's like the least amount of experience I have. But, of course, I was dumb enough to say, yes, oh, sure, sure, I'll do that, you know. And uh, so nonetheless, I said yes. And they bring me into this job, and I feel like I don't have a third of the tools I'm supposed to have. What they want me to tile are the, these walls and a floor that looks kind of like the surface of the moon, you know? And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And then what they want to use for, for tile cement looks more like actual mud to me than it does tile cement. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. What? So I, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So I get there, and I'm trying to put this mud on the wall, and every time I put the mud on the wall, it just, like, falls down. And I'm trying to put the tile. I just look like a moron. And, and then as I'm doing it, 
I, I hear these giggles, <laughs> and I realize I have an audience of all these, like, you know, all these kids and stuff and some of the adults watching me at the doorway looking like a moron. And, and I'm just thinking, what in the world have I, why did I say yes? Why did I say yes? And then eventually a young, a young guy comes in, kind of saves the day, takes the trial from me, and, and much to my chagrin, makes it look really easy. Like, he's, he's done this so many times before. Um, have you ever said yes to something that you realize really quickly you're, you're in over your head? Um, you're, you're just, you're, you're what, what they might call over your skis. <laughs> you're out of your league. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's, you know, you, ask, you, you said you would help with something. You'd, you said you'd lead something. Maybe, maybe you, you were so sure that God was calling you to something or to, to do something that you're like, yes, Lord, of course, if you're calling me to do it, I say yes. And then you're halfway down that road and you're like, this is much harder and much more painful than I anticipated it being. What's the deal? We're going to be getting into Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark 10. Um, we're going to look at verses 32 through 45. And you know, when the disciples agreed to follow Jesus, they had no idea what they were getting into. I think that gets really apparent uh, through the Gospels. But Jesus is ever patient with them. He, he's, he's determined that it'll be this motley crew, and they were a motley crew. It'd be this motley crew. That, would, that he would establish the church with and that he would get his message out to Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We can thank the Lord for that. That he would use this band of, <laughs> this ragabond band of men to do just that. And the world would never be the same. And the reality is, is he's still doing that He's still doing that with a bunch of unlikely people. You know, people rag on the church all the time. And I get it. I've experienced it. I've led long enough that I'm like, this is hard. <laughs> this is hard work. But this is still the group that God says, this is my bride. And I'm going to make her beautiful. And, and when she stands before me, she will be holy and without blemish. And I'm going to use this motley crew. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And people will be saved and rescued and changed and transformed. And people will be calling each other brothers and sisters that never were before. And God calls it beautiful. But to follow this in this way would mean incredible hardship for the disciples. Um, of the 11 that remained after Judas took his own life, 10 were martyred. And you can read about that. Horrible, horrible ways. I mean, yeah, there were miraculous releases from prison and, and God intervened in miraculous ways many times. But, but in the end, 10 of the 11 ended up martyred. James, who we'll talk about today a little bit, was the first of the 12 to be martyred. You see that, I think, in Acts chapter 12. Um, John was the only one to live to, to his later years. And he, history tells us he was once boiled in oil and survived. 
They tried to kill him by boiling him. One of the, one of the rulers in, in Rome tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, and he survived. He was eventually exiled for a season to the island of Patmos, this rocky, desolate, isolated island. And that's where the Lord gave him what we know of as what? Revelation. Not revelations, revelation. The great revelation, the last book of our Bible. These men had to learn the hard lesson of Charles Spurgeon that he spoke in a sermon. He said this, he said, your way up is downward. Your master descended that he might afterward ascend and fill all things. Your way of ascent must be downward, downward, downward. In Romans 8, 17, Paul writes, Now if we are God's children, then we are what? Heirs, right? We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. You know, we, we like the idea of being adopted children of God. Who wouldn't? That by God's grace through Christ, we could be, we could be God's children, loved by God. We, we love this idea that we are heirs of, a, of an inheritance, co-heirs with Christ. We love the idea that, that we will be sharing in glory, but we say maybe there's one part of that we can skip, Lord, eh? I'm not so sure about sharing in his sufferings. Mark 10, verses 32 through 34 they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So you'll want to be like Jesus. What we've gone, what we've, has preceded and Mark covered uh, a quick overview of three and a half, some, uh, some three plus years of ministry. And what we have left in uh, the gospel of Mark, and we get this rhythm in a lot of the gospels, is that it's very heavy in the last few weeks of the Lord's life here on earth. And now we see this journey leading them up. They're actually literally geographically going south, but you always went up to Jerusalem. Because you went up in elevation. It was a city on a hill, right? It is a city on a hill. And, and the great Jerusalem is the city on the hill. You always went up, both in elevation and in reverence. You went up to the holy city. So they're headed up to Jerusalem. And it says when they're headed up there, Jesus is at the forefront. He's leading the way. But it says those who follow, of those who follow, it says the disciples were what? Astonished. And then it seems like there's this other band of followers, this greater group of followers, probably many of the women that followed the Lord, many of others who would have been kind of disciples, small d, that followed after the Lord. It said they were what? Yeah, they were afraid. Why? 
unknown? Why astonished and afraid? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we get the sense that at this point in the gospel, there is tension in the air. And we don't know, was it even part of Jesus' body language, part of what he was talking about, this, this, regular, this regular talking about what, what we see him again predict here? Um, we, we sense that the opposition is growing toward Jesus, and it's pre- especially growing toward, with, within the religious elite that is, you know, the Sanhedrin that's found in Jerusalem. And here Jesus is leading the way, and in a sense he's leading himself and his followers, humanly speaking, what? Right into, right into danger, right? He, and he knows it. He knows it. In fact, he tells them again, and this isn't the first time, this is the third or the fourth time if you include what he did with Peter, James, and John coming off the Mount of the Transfiguration. He tells them again what's coming. They're astonished. The greater group is afraid. And he pulls the 12 again aside. And he says in striking detail, this is the most uh, detailed, specific prediction of what's about to happen to him. He had said that he'd suffer. He said that he's going to be rejected. He said that he's going to be killed. Now, now he, he also said later that he would be betrayed. And now for the first time, he says, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, to those outsiders and, and he says that he's going to be mocked and he's going to be spit on and that he's going to be flogged and eventually killed. And after every prediction of his death, he also reveals, but listen, after three days, after three days the Son of Man will rise. So what's ahead is complete treachery, complete humiliation, torture, and certain death, and equally as certain, equally as certain, is resurrection. Jesus doesn't go just to accomplish a temporary victory over a temporary human oppressor. He goes to accomplish an eternal victory over the oppressor of sin and of death. And he does that for all who will believe in him. And and this being 100% true, Jesus is also leading the way for all who will follow him. There's this journey of discipleship for all of us. And, And in one sense, this picture of this journey toward Jerusalem is true for all of us. We're all on this journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus has already said in this journey that that if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be like me, if anyone calls me master and says that, that I'm following you, you master, like you do, how much more for me? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verses 35 through 40, then... James and John, right, the brothers, sons of thunder, possibly related to Jesus. So some people think that, that he was actually technically their cousins, Jesus' cousins. The sons of Zebedee came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other 
at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So again, immediately after Jesus foretells his humble suffering, the disciples insert their egos. <laughs> it's really striking. It seems like the normal rhythm that's been happening. Um, I almost wondered, was there something that the Lord, that maybe the disciples thought Jesus was being a little bit of a defeatist, you know? Hey, we're going, the, the kingdom's going to be established here, right? Why do you keep talking about your death? Is this figurative? Is this another parable? <laughs> and even though there's obvious trepidation on the journey, the, the, the disciples still hope that, that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom, right? And that was right. But it should be striking to us this contrast between the disciples' view of kingdom and the disciples' view of discipleship and Jesus' view. What, what, do, what do James and John ask for? What do they ask for? Okay. Authority. Okay. What do they first ask for? Whatever they want. The first thing they ask for is a blank check. We want you, O Lord our God, O Master, O Rabbi, we want you to do whatever we ask. And this is always the prayer of the immature heart. And it's plenty of times been my prayer. It's the prayer that looks to control God rather than to surrender to him. It's the prayer that says, I'll be a good follower as long as you do what I want. <laughs> and as long as you give me whatever I ask. James would later write, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. What do they want? David Garland says, James and John foresee themselves as the elite of the elite, ruling over others in an earthly empire. They hope to replace the self-serving, oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving, oppressive power structure. 
John Stott says that our world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements, and everlastingly dreaming of success. And how does Jesus respond to their requests? Again, with grace and truth. For one, he says, and, and I, again, I'm astounded <laughs> by his patience. For one, he says, you, you just don't know what you're asking for. You just don't know what you're asking for. They're truly ignorant. They, they don't know what it's going to take yet to establish this kingdom. Jesus has tried to tell them, <laughs> but, but until it happens, they just don't get it. And then, and then he says, he asks him a question. He says, he says, I have a cup to drink. He says, you want to share it with me? You want to be like me? You want to follow me? You want to be like Jesus? He says, I have a cup to drink. I have a baptism to be baptized in. And that doesn't mean sprinkling somebody. <laughs> the Old Testament picture here is, is, is a total deluge. It's being covered deep into deep under the waters. It's immersion. He says, I have a cup to drink. I have a baptism to go through. You want to share it with me? Are you able to share it with me? John Phillips says that Jesus had begun his public ministry by being plunged beneath the chilly waters of the Jordan. Thus to, to identify himself with Adam's ruined race, which he had come to save. Ahead lay a deeper, darker Jordan, the dark river of death. There he would be identified with the sins of the world. There he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. There he, the Lord of life, would taste death for every man. How did James and John respond? Yep, bring it on. They, they give, a, they give a, a brash and ignorant, yes, yes, I'll tile that wall for you. <laughs> Yet, oh, drink the cup, sure. Be baptized in the same baptism, let's have it. I wonder how Jesus felt in that moment. <laughs> and maybe part of it is that it's like the rich young ruler, right? He looked at him and loved him. And all our ignorant yeses. <laughs> uh, only one other time does Mark use the phrase on his right and on his left. And R. Alan Cole points out the irony. Those actually on the right and the left of Jesus at the great moment of his triumph were to be two crucified terrorists, making plain what in cold reality it meant to share in his cup and in his baptism. And Jesus tells him, you know, in one sense you are correct. In one sense you will share in it. And this probably has a dual reality to it. 
Because in one sense, praise be to God, when we come to Jesus in faith, we're united with him, right? We're united with him. That's what we, when we're baptized, when we go through the immersion of the water, we are baptized into his death, baptized unto his resurrection, right? Death with Christ, death to sin, alive in Christ, right? That's a picture of baptism, what we're united with Christ. That's a picture when we have communion together, we're united with you, Lord. We take the cup, we take the bread. We know that you went before, you did what we could not do for ourselves. But in another sense, I think he's saying you will share. You will indeed share in my sufferings in order that they might also share in his glory. Jesus doesn't need to get all the discipleship done in one fell swoop, nor do we. But he's planting seeds here for what will come. James, you're going to suffer. You're, in fact, going to die for me. John, you're going to suffer. <laughs> you're asking for the seats on the right hand and the left, but you don't know yet what's ahead. But you will. You will share in my sufferings as you will share in my glory. If we frame this as a prayer, if we think of this request as a prayer, was the prayer answered? Was the prayer answered? Okay. How so? Did, was, their, was their request accepted or denied? Seems like a trick question, right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes we just don't know what we're asking for. Sometimes yes means a lot more than we understand. Sometimes God just says no. Or not yet. And, and I think rather than going away and pouting like children, we should dwell in that. Lord, why no? Why not yet? What, what, how is it, Lord, that my heart isn't yet aligned to yours? Finally, verses 41 through 45. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now James and John have managed to get on the other ten disciples' You're a real jerk list. James and John, real jerks. You're a real jerk. You're a real jerk. Um, anybody have a list like that? I, you're a real jerk. God's like often working on that list, right? Like, um, 
Now, why were they indignant? Was it because, you know, oh, how, how could James and John be vying for positions of greatness like that? The Lord's already, been taught, already taught us this. That's not what greatness is about in the kingdom. Or, or was it that, that they, they thought, James and John, how can you possibly be so tone deaf? Didn't you just hear Jesus talk about his suffering and his death? Is that why they were so indignant? Why were they so indignant? Yeah, you got there first. James and John, did you see how they nuzzled up and brown-nosed the Lord? And, oh, man, and they want the place on the right and the left, and that's what I want. And Jesus knows that they all need a course correction, and he once again teaches them how different the way of discipleship is from the rest of the world. And he tells them jarringly, this would have been jarring for them. It would have been jarring for them. They're acting like pagans. They're acting like Gentiles. We're Gentiles. In a sense, we could hear him saying, you're acting like the very cutthroat, heavy-handed bullies that are lording over you. Your hearts are in the same place as the Romans that are lording over you. What? And Jesus says these four words that I think we all need to hear. Not so with you. Not so with you. And again, I don't think it's this heavy-handed. He's just, listen, not so with you. Others are hungry for power, and they soothe their egos and, and their, their, their inferiority complexes. Not so with you. Others seek status at the expense of others, especially the powerless. Not so with you. Others feel superior to those they lead. And love trampling on the little guy, not so with you. Others seek position so that they can be served, so that they can be respected and revered. And Jesus says, not so with you. Others love to say, see what I did, see what I did, see what I did. (laughs) And the Lord says, not so with you. David Garland again says, self-giving service is the only greatness recognized by God. Self-giving service is the only greatness recognized by God. So what does it take to qualify to serve? Martin Luther King Jr. said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And Jesus says, you want to know what it looks like? Watch and follow me. And it it should be stunning to us every time we dwell on this, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became the Son of Man. That Jesus, who spoke galaxies into existence with just his words, was born as a helpless infant to a poor young couple in Bethlehem. That Jesus, the one who the storms would quiet at his word, that demonic Spirits would shriek and flee at his command. That sickness and death itself would be reversed to wholeness and health and life 
with a touch, with a word. That this Jesus, the one of, of whom angelic, majestic angelic be, uh, beings would bow low in his presence and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That Jesus would say, that master, that ruler, that Lord, did not come to be served, but to serve. Walter Wessel says, in the kingdom of God, humble service is the rule, and even the Son of Man is not exempt from it. He is, in fact, par excellence, the example of it. And the idea is this idea through the Gospels, then how much more? If Jesus is servant, capital S, how much more? Are we to serve one another? How much more are we to make ourselves slave of all? Not just in theory, but in practice. How much more are we to say, no, it's not all about me. It's about what I can do for you in Jesus' name. And the ultimate expression of Jesus' servitude is that he would give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom means the price of release. It's literally where we get our word redemption. So when you hear the word redemption and redeemed, what it means is a ransom was paid for you to free you unto him. That you are a slave. It literally means a transaction that would be paid to free a slave. And you are a slave to your sin. You are a slave to the domination of death. And the Lord says, I will pay your ransom. And I will drink the cup. And it's done for many. And this little word for means instead of, in place of. It, it, it denotes substitution. Again, Walter Wessel says, what should have happened to us, happened to him. And David Garland says, having been ransomed by Christ, we belong entirely to him. So when we say yes to God, and we say yes to Jesus, I'm convinced that there's nothing better than being ransomed by him, unto him, being belonging to Christ. I'm convinced that all who belong to Christ are his children of whom God has lavished his love upon. I'm convinced that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. I'm convinced in the inheritance that we have and that we will share in his glory. And I'm also convinced, and the Lord does this in my life, still according to his grace, <laughs> and is still teaching me the importance of this, and still teaching me, even though I want to recoil from it, that at some level we are all called to a journey to Jerusalem and that we will be refined by sharing in his sufferings. And I'm convinced that my heart and my prayers are often as shallow and often as selfish and often as vain glory-seeking as James and John's was that day. And the Lord says, oh, let me teach you. 
Let me show you the way. I'm convinced that Jesus is equally as patient and that I need to be molded by his grace and truth. On this journey to Jerusalem, knowing his heart more, knowing what greatness really looks like. Uh, I'm going to finally read well-known verses, and then maybe as I do, I can invite Dave up. Out of Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant or a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.